Audi. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. For this episode, I am sitting at my kitchen table in Brighton. Yes, I did check it was legal with a man I actually went to school with in Spain. Please forgive the few audio bumps and the noise of the children in the background. They do calm down after a while, I promise. And I think because I was so excited to finally be interviewing someone face to face after lockdown easing a little bit here in the UK, I was also a bit rusty. Anyway, Hugh has a well-known festival called Into the Wild, as well as doing many other things. And he's one of the most well-travelled people I know. And I know you're going to absolutely love his stories. Into the Wild Festival promoter Hugh Wynne grew up in his mother's hotel in Wales and then Spain. On this episode, Hugh and I talk growing up feral in Andalusia, hitching across Europe, dropping fish packing in the Netherlands to run off to Glastonbury, the Arabian Nights vibe of Cairo, the poetic side of being a London bin man, meeting Mother Teresa in Calcutta, meeting the Dalai Lama, studying Tibetan medicine in Scotland, hitching 2,000 miles through Nepal in the back of a truck, Tom Hardy at his festival, rewilding building and so much more. So we are sitting in my kitchen and it is legal. We have checked because we are working and I'm with Hugh, who actually I went to school with, which is very interesting. I was thinking of some of my memories of you from school earlier and I think like, like many of us growing up in Spain, you're a little bit feral. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's why I became friends with your brother. So, yeah. He was also quite feral. Yeah, we used to have lots of fun. I think it was, you know, coming from Wales, where it was quite shut down in the winter in many ways, to go into Spain in school and, you know, having the beach five minutes away was just great, wasn't it? We, yeah. we, were, we certainly were liberated, weren't we, in a Absolutely. sense? Absolutely. And in those days, you know, in Spain we had... Um, you could just have a moped without a license, 14, and no helmets. We were just like, yay, you know, health and safety, non-existent. We were just out all night, weren't we, yeah. from a very young age? We didn't go out till about 11, would you? you no. Know? Whereas in Wales, you'd be in bed by, you know, whatever. And I love the way that our parents just sort of, because my parents, I mean, I know a lot of your mum is fantastic, but my parents are very sensible people. You know, they don't even drink, my parents, but um, they just seem to let us go, Feral. They seem to be quite happy to, yeah. to just go, hey, off you go, kids. Yeah. Enjoy yourselves. Yeah. It was, no, it was a fun place to, uh, to exchange Wales for, for sure, you know. In fact, I think that was part of the, got me into travelling and a lot more freedom in a way, you know, cause, especially because it was so multinational you know, people from all over the world and even the school was quite feral in its own way, wasn't it, in those days and the international school was basically 
I think they could scraped up whatever teachers they could at the time. Yeah. I remember some very clever teachers, also quite a lot of drunk ones, many people having Mr. affairs yeah, I know. <laughs> affairs with each other. And it, it was almost like they were the rejects from English schools. Yeah. But they were, they were good rejects. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I got a reasonable education. Do you? Uh, I left school, uh, I think it was um, 15. The, the temptations of the beach and stuff were just too much. So I didn't end up doing any exams or anything. Which, uh, you know, these days, I think it's, it's almost illegal. <laughs> but, but yeah, it didn't matter. They didn't kick you out, though? No, I just left. I kind of just went off. I mean, I got, went back to Wales for a bit. And then I got a job in Gibraltar. Did you? Yeah. This is your first foray into travel. Yeah. You crossed the border <laughs> from the south of Spain. Yeah, I worked as a little uh, commie chef in, in a hotel in Gibraltar for a while. And lived in La Linea. I've got a brilliant travel story about you, which I think we'll get to after we start talking about the festival stuff, but I've got a, a, a travel story that directly involves you, and really? I don't know if you remember. Yeah, in fact, I, I'm pretty sure you won't remember. I mean, it's not a really significant one, but it was one a story that I told for quite a while because it used to make me laugh. But anyway, let's, let's talk a little bit about the festivals because as we record this, it's the end of March, and we, where are we with festivals? Some of them are going ahead. And you, you tell, us about, tell us first of all about your festival. Um, so I run a festival called Into the Wild, which is, I guess, the UK's largest nature-based well-being festival. When I say nature-based, I don't mean naked um, people running around. I mean people who want to come out into nature and enjoy things like wildcrafts and things like bushcrafts, fire-making, you know, um, yoga meditation dance, singing, choirs, loads, loads of different stuff. And we had lots of world music and um, speakers and people from, you know, from the kind of environmental networks plus authors and all sorts of things. So, yeah, that was going really well. It built up to, we ran two a year, one in May, which was the first festival of the year in many ways, the, the old festival of Beltane. And that would be about one and a half thousand and then in August, bank holiday, we built up from about 500 to 5,000. And it was um, 1,500 of that were kids. So they would be running around like wild, making dens in the woods and just, uh, yeah, it was, it was wonderful. And then it all stopped. Everything stopped, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. So what's happening this year? I know a few festivals are trying to be back on, but I don't know how that's going so far. I don't. I think most people don't really know. I think some of the larger corporate festivals like Reading and Leeds and that are kind of pushing it to go for it and, and Boomtown, but they are in many ways for the teenagers who, let's be honest, are not so worried about it. They just want to get out there, you know. Whereas ours is quite a mixed audience of families and um, people of all ages, from little babies to 80-year-olds, you know, we have a whole range. So we're, it's a little bit more complex for us. So we're, we're, we're hoping, we can't do the May Festival, we're hoping to do the August Bank Holiday, but much smaller this year if we do it. We're probably about the size of our Spring Festival. But in the last year of lockdown, Normally I would travel a lot around the world, especially in the spring still, and um, I couldn't. So I spent, I live out in the countryside near Lewis, and spent every day out on my bike or walking in the local landscape. And there's a, there's a famous quote by an American poet called Gary Snyder, which says, 
become famous for five miles. So it's like getting to know your local, the, the natural world around you, you know, your local landscape. So I started discovering where the frogs live and where the, the swans hang out and where the buzzards are and the deer and, and just really got to know the local, local landscape. But also I realised how much had been lost, you know. So something like in the last 40 years, we've lost something like 60% of our wildlife through a lot of agri- intense agricultural farming. So many reasons, you know. And so I felt, it felt sad, you know, that we're, we're at that place. So I was really thinking about this and started researching and reading. And I was quite passionate about rewilding. And there's a brilliant rewilding uh, state, probably the, the most important one in the UK at the moment, called Nep Castle in West Sussex. And I go there and um, around and realised I wanted to, to do something rather than just recycling a few plastic cups, which is great. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to feel empowered to do something, and especially around bringing back wildlife and nature. So I set up this project called Wilderlands, and now we are running a whole series of wild weekends, which are much smaller. So it's like a wild campsite. Wild's well, got all the nice, you know, facilities and stuff, but, but it's, it, it's focusing on bringing families out into nature, you know, 100 people to 150 maximum, maybe less, depends. And we have workshops, lots of wild crafts, lots of archery, lots of fire making, lots of den making, lots of um, yoga, meditation, all sorts of things, and lots of great speakers, actually. I've in fact just invited David Attenborough. Have you? Yeah. Oh my God. I wrote to Can him. Can I you come ha- to that one? You have to write. You have to um, write hand handwritten letter to him if he'll respond. Oh my God, my handwriting's awful. I know. I'd love to get him on the podcast, I, but I fail at the handwriting. I, I can have, barely hold a pen these days. I know. Jokes. It looks like about hundred. It took me about four hours to write a two-page letter. <laughs> I had to keep writing it, you know. So it was, uh, like, uh, you know, you could read it. He wants handwritten letters. I mean, he's David Attenborough. He can have it. He can have yeah, it in gold, as exactly. far as I'm concerned. Exactly. So did he? Has he said yes? Well, it's just gone off the last week. Oh, okay, so we'll see. But we do have some amazing other authors and stuff like... Uh, there's a, an amazing author called Jay Griffiths who wrote a book called Wild. We've got the great conservationist Alan Watson Featherston and um, the great mythologist Dr Martin Shaw and all sorts of people coming along. So each weekend is slightly themed from some about folklore and mythology, some about there's a yoga camp, some about rewilding, some just just pure wild weekends. That sounds know. amazing. And when do they start? How do we find out about this? Uh, so they start the end of May, hopefully. Everything is hopefully. This all could be just like a great idea that, you know, dissolves like everything else. But hopefully they start, I think, the weekend of May the 21st and they go right till September the 23rd. And... You can find out about them on our website, which is wilderlands, all one word, .co.uk. Now, I saw, talking of famous people that in your festivals, I saw Tom Hardy went to one of your festivals. He turned up at one of our festivals. I just, just saw his face there. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to the next one. All the women were just like melting. It was a hot weekend. And he turned up with, you know, he had his top off. He was with his, um, was his children and he was wandering around and... Some of the pictures I saw after of the women's faces, because he was very kind and taking photos, and they were just like, well, what can I say? Just literally gobsmacked, and you know, it was people were like, this is the best day of my life. 
And then I put the photos out the next, you know, for the next year advertising. People would book just thinking Tom Hardy was going to turn up, you know. It's yeah. an attraction enough for me. He lives in the Sussex countryside, I think, doesn't he? Does he? Yeah, I think so. I think right. that's probably why he was there. Well, the thing about our summer festival, we, we, this is not the same with the World Weekends, but the summer festival, we do it. That the end, the, we try and have it alcohol-free, as in we don't have any bars. I mean, um, that was partly to encourage sense of well-being, but also so... We know what festivals are like. Often festivals go, get, you know, get out of it, wake up with a hangover on Saturday, you know, and it's great. But with ours, we've lots of workshops. We wanted to encourage the, the, the parents and, you know, so dad wake wake up and mum on Saturday and feel fresh and go, go and do workshops with the kids and hang out. And, it, and that, was, that pretty much happened. And, I, and Tom doesn't drink, so... I think, you know, that appealed to him. All right, well, I'll, yeah. I'll make a date for uh, for Tom and, and everyone. I'll be doing that. That sounds brilliant. Um, I, I watch you closely on social media, and I, photography is amazing, really, really amazing. But we need to get onto your travel personally, because that's what this podcast is about, exploring life stories through travel. And so I'll start with, with what I remember about your travels. So when I was, it was a month past my 16th birthday that I moved from the Costa del Sol to Spain, uh, to, to Brighton, sorry, where we are right now. Now, in a cyclical, uh, cyclical something serendipitous. I can't even think of the words. And um, and I bumped into you walking down the street in Kensington Gardens. I was like, "Hey, my goodness!" You know, we went to school together. Like, how are you? And then I kept on bumping into you, like wherever I went. I mean, I didn't go many places at that point, but I do remember bumping into you in London and bumping into you in about five or six different places in Brighton. I mean, looking back, you know, Brighton is, is a small town and that, that sort of happened. Um, but every time you'd been away travelling and then come back, and then uh, I said to you, God, this is amazing. If I went to India, I'd probably bump into you there. And I, since I, I wasn't a big traveller at the time, I was a bit young and, you know, hadn't done that much travelling, but um, I did later go to India, didn't bump into you. But about six months after I said that to you, it's like, I, I don't know, if I go to India, I'm sure i bumped into you there. I was in the pub that I was working in, the Pig in Paradise on, on Queen's Road at the time, and um, some people had just come back from their, from India and they were showing us their photos. You know, that's how long ago they, their actual hard photos. And they were showing me their photos. And there you were sitting in the photos. Like, oh, my God, that's so funny. Because the last thing I said to you was, I bet if I went to India, I'd bump into you there. And there you were sitting in the photos. So I, I know you've had some tremendous, tremendous travels. Where, where did it all start? Wow, I think the first place I went after working in Gibraltar is I met these quite wild bunch of um, English travellers living in Spain and they were going over to, to Morocco. So I went over to Morocco, um, must have been about 16, and it, yeah, I loved it, but I find Morocco quite daunting. It's quite, um, it was quite hassly in those days, you know. Um, so that started um, a, a taste for travelling. And then I met uh, a girlfriend in Brighton actually um, and we travelled we went to Spain to see my mum and then we hitchhiked all the way across up through Spain right through Barcelona down through the south of France to Italy up through Austria Switzerland background you know working and just we didn't even have a tent we just went wherever we went and we, we you know we'd hitchhike in those days which doesn't seem to happen much anymore but we just went on the road and met some incredible people. I remember in Italy once we met this, uh, we were out in the Alps and this uh, guy picked us up and he was uh, a priest from Argentina and he took us to his brother's farm 
and they you know let us have a room for a couple of nights and wine and grapes and you know we had loads of stories like that I remember getting a, a lift one night off the only one-legged um, lorry driver in France who the, apparently he'd written to the president of France and they helped make a lorry that he could drive you know great little stories um, so Europe and then um, I travelled around the UK for a while in those days there was um, the kind of free festival scene in Glastonbury so um, I went to Glastonbury for my first time oh, before that I'd gone to live in Holland for a while that's it and then I went to Glastonbury and Glastonbury blew my mind because it was just like wow and in those days Glastonbury was honestly it turned up at the fence and there was some um, scousers there who dug a hole underneath and the, you paid them a fiver and you were in and you know and that's how it was and it was just like a medieval world to me then. You know. Didn't you run off? I, I'm sure I've seen you post it on social media that when you were in Holland doing something to do with the chewy lips or something like that, didn't you like meet some people and just sort of go off to Glastonbury for a weekend and never come back? Yeah, did you, you, you remember that? Well, yeah, that's really good. what happened. I was working in, in a fish factory in Holland with, with, with uh, an Irish girl called Marilyn. And we, we heard about this thing called Glastonbury. We didn't really know what it was, but it was on the next weekend and we really wanted to go. And they, we, we didn't have enough money. So she came up with this plan to tell them that her uh, brother or someone was really not well and we had to get back to, to Ireland. And they gave us our wages. And so we jumped on, on, on a uh, Euro coach at the time, whatever it was, and then hitchhiked to Glastonbury and then got in. And I think by the time we got in, we had about £10 each left. And um, it was a funny story because I put to my tent and I was in a pair of shorts, I remember, and a T-shirt and maybe a light jacket and went off and couldn't find my tent again for three nights. But I met some people and they looked after me and um, on the Monday, when a lot of the tents had gone, I found my tent. I never saw Marilyn again. And um, there was some work there um, clearing up Glastonbury. And it used to be these big teams where this kind of ex-sergeant guy called Brian used to command everyone and be in big lines and you'd, you'd go across the fields collecting the rubbish. And it would be three or four weeks' worth and you'd get paid well and fed. And so I did that. And, yeah, my life changed then. I just started travelling around, going to festivals and stuff. And then I met Joe in Brighton. And we then, that's it, what it really changed, is I went to Egypt and I, with a friend I'd met in Brighton, and I absolutely loved Egypt in those days. And I still miss Egypt because things have changed a lot now. But Cairo was just the most magnificent place, you know. So kind of Arabian nightish with, with the falafels and the hookah pipes and the, the mad traffic and the, the people. And it was just incredible. And it was cheap. And we travelled around Egypt, took a felucca up the Nile, and then went to the Sinai and went um, snorkeling in the coral reefs. And I, I, I it was a kind of a, almost like an enlightening experience for me going there. I absolutely loved it. And when I got back, we, we moved to London, and I just wanted to travel, so we saved up and I actually worked that winter in London on the rubbish bins 
with this, uh, they are kind of private company, but we'd go around on a Friday night, start work, and work all weekend over the nights, and we'd drive through central London, and you'd watch the the life of London from the nightclubs and the people and then suddenly, you know, for the, for the early hours, the kind of remnants in Trafalgar Square and the people being ill and then suddenly the quietness of London with foxes and then, you know, and we, I saved enough money and we went to India for the first time when I was about 21. That's the most poetic description of being a binman I've ever heard. <laughs> it was pretty harsh at times. But, um, but you're yeah. like that, aren't you? You're very much like that with your, your travels, your spiritual. And you've done all the stuff I wish I'd done, but actually my travels have all been like paid for, for luxury hotels by publications and stuff, which is, you know, has its own merits. Um, I've never slung on a, on a backpack and gone, you know, around the pole, which, uh, you know, you have. But um, actually, I don't even know if you had a backpack. Like in my mind's eye, I see you with like, you know, your pockets full and... And sort of bare feet almost. You, you seem to have had some very profound travels. Yeah, I think I did. I, you know, it's funny because I lost my dad when I was very young. I lived brought up in Anglesey in Wales in this old kind of mansion house come monastery that my mum turned into a hotel. And my dad died when I was five, was it six, sorry. And that kind of had quite a profound impact on me of like, you know, wondering what it's all about. And I think that stirred it on. And don't get me wrong, these days I'll stay in nice places, you know, and I don't go for so long and I, and I really, really appreciate that opportunity. So that first time in India, talking about that, I, we were travelling for six months and I think we had about £400 each, literally. But we, we worked in an orphanage for street children um, and we worked in... Calcutta, home for de- Mother Teresa's home for destitute and dying, and met Mother Teresa in the, and um, went to Dharamsala, met the Dalai Lama. We had, you know, all, we were doing all the kind of classic spiritual cliches in some ways, but you know, it was it was a wonderful experience, and we stayed with the British High Commissioner. Funny enough, we we, we were staying in the quite cheap places let's just say that um and you know it w- when i first arrived in india we stayed in this really cheap place and i was almost in tears because there was like rats in the toilet and stuff and i just wanted to go home and literally was like no six months later when i left i was in tears because it, we'd had such an amazing time but my girlfriend joe's mum at the time was uh, quite a well-known uh, sculpture and she sculpted um the british high commissioner's parents and so she wanted to come and visit us and got in touch with him. And so when she came, we didn't know, but we turned up at the airport and there was a bomb-proof Daimler there with um, a little British flag and, um, you know, all the bearers and stuff and the high commissioner with big flowers for her. And they said, get in the back. Well, you're coming to stay in the high commission. And it was the week after Princess Diana had stayed there when she know that famous photo so we stayed in her the room that she stayed in so like the week before from being in this kind of vagabond you know from Goa to all round we suddenly had our own bearers and our own you know headed paper and, and, it, and we were having dinner with the ambassador from Malaysia and <laughs> Burma and it was just like I, can, I, I know having seen you at the time I can imagine in the nicest possible way you looked like crap you know you were like travellers and like, you know, really? like straws sticking out your hair well the great thing in India you can go to the barbers for you know for a pound and they will shave you and you know tidy you up and um, yeah that was that was quite incredible and then we went to Ladakh 
um, which has been one of my favourite places, which is um, right in the northwest of India, and it's it used to be part of Tibet, but luckily um, it became part of India, and it's an ancient king, Buddhist kingdom. And um, whilst we were there, Joe's brother died, which was and his and his his soon-to-be wife in a mountain accident in Canada. He was a doctor. And we had been walking in this a really remote valley called Sanskar, which was a three-week walk of a uh, few hundred miles. And we'd gone, just me and her, and um, one guy with a horse who carried all our stuff. And we had a parachute. We stayed in you know, a tent, an old parachute that they, they dropped supplies in. And we'd walk through this vast... Um, uninhabited mainly uh, remote valleys and when we got through three weeks I mean those days no phones or anything you know um, we phoned home on, on you know on the on the monthly call and found out this had just happened so within days we were rushed to Delhi to the high commissions again and flown straight home so it was quite shocking from being in this really remote kingdom to within a week back into this funeral and this this um, dreadful experience really. To Canada, you flew to Canada? No, he, they, he was British but they'd gone on holiday there so we're back in, in the Midlands and um, yeah, it was quite full on but we went back to Ladakh um, a year later because a funny thing happened, I was, there used to be a nightclub uh, there's a, well there is a nightclub under the arches under Charing Cross and there used to be uh, a quite a famous night called Megatropolis. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And they used to invite people like um, the famous science terrorist McKenna, who was a science of psychedelics, and Allen Ginsberg, the famous beat poet. And they were all there one night. I remember we were working there. And um, there was this little Ladakhi traditional doctor called Amchi Smanla. And he was talking about his you know, seventh generation um, traditional medicine place out in the middle of nowhere. And he was so sweet, but he was so overwhelmed by all these hippies in these kind of like, you know, we're looking for this, this kind of psychedelic speakers and stuff. And I just really felt for him. And I went up and spoke to him and I said, I'll come and visit you. And I did. And we became, we're still really good friends. And I studied Tibetan medicine for five years after that. Yeah. In the, where did you study? Tell me about studying Tibetan medicine. So I studied with him and his some traditional doc, um, healers, doctors, whatever you want to call them, um, in Ladakh. And then when I came back to the UK, there was a monastery, a Tibetan monastery in Scotland called Sami Lin, with an amazing um, set by Alcon Rinpoche, who sadly passed away about five years ago. But he was an incredible man and a, a doctor as well. And he has done incredible charity work across the world and he so inspired me so he set up a Tibetan medicine course and I studied there every year and still travel to India every year travelled across Tibet um, we hitchhiked two and a half thousand miles across Tibet to the most remote mountain Mount Kailash which is um, the most sacred mountain for Buddhists Hindus and Jains um, and we did it without permits in the back of trucks one summer and it was a most incredible journey it was just vast, open, wide and the most remote I've ever been 
and we got put in a Chinese police cell one night for going in the wrong area and we hung out with nomads and I lost a lot of weight whilst out there because I got quite ill but we, we did it for a month and we hitchhiked back and we got into Nepal I'll never forget this we got back into Nepal and we got across the border and there was a classic Nepali chai shop place and Nepalese one of the most lovely people in the world and I hadn't, you know, I, I could never eat, I still can't eat noodles because I'm so ill. <laughs> and they had egg and chips on the menu. Thank right? God. Oh my God. I had egg and chips and beer, cold beer and it was the, the best meal I've ever had in my entire life. You know, it was like, and then we met this American guy, this crazy American guy, and we, we hitchhiked back to Kathmandu on top of the bus. So we sat on top of the bus drinking beer, going around the mountain valleys, you know, the sun pouring through the, the pines and it was just, I'll never forget it. And so we out in the middle of Tibet, the Tibetans out in that area, they hardly wash and stuff, you know, because it's so remote and there's no bathrooms or anything, you know, it's not Airbnb culture. <laughs> and so we, we were looking quite well. I remember looking in the mirror when I got back to Kathmandu and I was like skinny, like bl- almost like blackened face because of the tan and the high altitude. Because of sitting on the roof. Yeah, and being out in this high altitude desert. And so I went to the barbers the next morning and I, you know, got in there and I closed my eyes and he shaved me. And I'll never forget looking up in the mirror and half my face was still brown and half it was kind of white where he'd shaved the beard, you know. So, yeah, yeah, some incredible journeys. You, just, you could just disappear back in those days, couldn't you? I mean, you could actually disappear. People did disappear never to return, but you could disappear for months on end and not be in touch. I speak to my mum once every three months or something. I had, there was no internet, there no, no mobiles. Um, yeah the odd phone call, the odd letter at post or something, you'd have to say, write to me at this post office in three weeks if it got there, and then you'd get this little letter and, you know, um, and it would be quite precious. And I still, she still kept some of those letters. And there was a certain beauty and naivety to all, I think, in those days, because you, you weren't constantly telling everyone what, what you're doing and, it, you know, the kind of slightly narcissistic culture we live in now of, of look at me look at me there was you know I hardly got any photos of those days which is a shame I've got some really beautiful ones but you know you never know what you get you take them and hopefully they come out okay you know but it you know most of it lives in, in the memories so yeah it's been wonderful that you've been able to make this um passion and life actually into a you know a working part of your life which is you know I'm guessing it, it doesn't take a genius to work out that all this is leading up to you know creating the the festivals and the life you've created for yourself yeah I think it was and it was it was being out in some of these remote um, remote parts of India and Tibet and I, I visited quite a lot of these kind of Sufi festivals and stuff in India, which were these kind of gatherings out in the world with these beautiful devotional singers and stuff. And, it, you know, it can't help but touch you. It, it, you know, I remember this 80-odd-year-old blind woman singing it as dusk arises about falling in love with the beloved or, you know. And so spiritually, it's very raw and, and real, you know. It's very kind of... Um, embedded with the landscape and the culture and it really touched me a lot and in Egypt was the same and you know I travelled in Australia New Zealand um, 
more re- the most re- more recently over the years in Thailand, which I absolutely love. Mm. Um, in America, a lot as well. Actually, we um, I love the Midwest in America. I've travelled quite a bit around Arizona and Utah and those places and um, California, and I and I absolutely love that that place. And no matter what anyone says, my experience of America, everyone I've met has been so friendly and lovely and the landscape is just out of this world, you know. So You forget, don't you, because you've got everything in America. And people laugh at Americans for having a small percentage of people who have passports, but they do have every type of landscape there yeah. you could possibly ask for. Obviously, travel is important to many of us for other reasons, but, you know, you've got the... The, you've got the snow, you've got the peaks, you've got the deserts, you've got the oceans, you've got... It's vast, really vast. Yeah, and there's a big travelling culture in America, really, which is the RV travelling culture. I love you know, it. Where, the, you know, people travel right across the States in these big, huge vehicles, like houses, and it's amazing. I mean, yeah, you could spend your whole life just travelling around America, couldn't you, you know? And for a lot of people, it's easy because everyone speaks, uh, you know similar in language that you know and they love English well my experience they, they, they're very open to English people mm-hmm. you know Welsh English they seem to think Welsh is English but that's fine but yeah no I've, I've, I've loved everywhere I've loved one of the places I've loved being is Iceland I've been a couple of times I um, with my daughters I've got two daughters um, and when they're 14 when they were 14 I said to them both let's choose somewhere to go so with my eldest Shakira we went to Iceland and had a week there it was amazing driving around Iceland what an incredible place and my uh, younger one Isla we went to New York for a few days and that was just fantastic as well you know? so yeah I think that's the one thing I really do miss about the lockdown and that as well although it's been wonderful to explore this country more and I've always have done but you know even more is the ability to just travel to me you know we took that for granted so much just being able to jump on a plane you know and um and also we're all separated I say this so often on tv and radio when I'm doing you know travel updates but we're all separated from people we love and that's the that's the the, the very difficult part it'd be beautiful to go to you know off exploring India or Nepal or anywhere right now but I imagine the one thing you really want to do is hop on a plane like I do to Malaga and see your mum yeah I haven't seen my mum for what is it, 18 months now and she had Covid and she's 82 and she's um, she, she got through it she's quite a you know powerhouse and um, yeah, she's she she was really inspiring because the first lockdown in Spain was quite hardcore, and so she decided to write her life story, and um, it it's a wonderful story and it's a great legacy to have for her grandchildren and maybe their children, you know, to to, to see her life. She was brought up in really real poverty in Wales after losing my granddad her dad who was trying to save the king of Norway on a ship um, uh, HMS Glorious and they got torpedoed and I think it was the biggest casualties of a warship in the whole war and he died and my nan who was a wonderful woman I loved her so much um, travelled with two very young 
young babies across, because they were stationed in Malta, Valletta, across Europe and got back to Wales and they, they, they lived, because he, he was Welsh, in mid-Wales, rural Wales, in, in a very small house, no electricity, toilets outside. You know, my nan used to gather the parachutes, they used to drop the food to make knickers and underwear for for them it was really extreme so my mum worked really hard and, and then bought this hotel and then moved to Spain and she's had an incredible life so uh, I've read book, it have you yeah it's called A Pickled Pass I do so, know what I should have it next time I get to Malaga I'll have her on the podcast because she's absolutely wonderful and her story about you know bringing you and your I know you've got Keris haven't you Keris your sister Kerry and Kerry, Emma. Yeah. Kerry and Emma, that was yeah. it. I never knew them as much as I knew you, but um, I can visualise Kerry really well. Um, she had all that blonde hair, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, you know, your father died when you were six, and presumably the others, are they slightly older? Well, my sisters. Yeah. Uh, Emma's uh, two years older, and Kerry's two years younger. You can't imagine what your mum went through, but she's such a strong woman, and she's been an incredible traveller as well, hasn't she? So she has, yeah. I should get her on the podcast, but yeah, well, I'll, I'll promote the book as well. But she's she's wonderful, really wonderful. She she like she after her uh, husband David died in Spain, was it fifteen years ago now? So I can't remember exactly how long it is. But she, yeah, like you know, she started working with the theatre even before that and started travelling taking people everywhere from across Morocco to Egypt a few times to Iceland to all across Spain you know um, yeah she, she started really travelling again and loved it she went to India by herself into what 78 or something then she went to Nepal by herself and she was like just you know wandering around and meeting people and just really kind of going for it I never thought when I was in India younger that my mum would like would deal with India and it's you know the hard it can be hard yeah. yeah but she did and she loved it she actually loved India and I was really surprised I can see where your your spirit comes from and hers I think she's been inspired by you as well you know because her generation weren't necessarily travellers they were just getting by you know but then she's also been she's got that spirit and she's been inspired by you and I hope it, it sounds a little bit patronising because I'm younger than you and um, only a couple of years I'm imagining but because um, of my brother my big brother's friend but um, it's really nice to like look back and see how you've grown <laughs> you know from that sort of kid that just went off and did stuff and actually you've carried on going off and doing stuff but it's sort of um, it's worked out really well, which is lovely. Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because when I was when I left school at fifteen and I started traveling, my mum was like really not happy about it and thought, what, you know, who is this kind of vagabond child that I've had? What's he doing with his life? You know, why isn't he getting a job in a bank or you know whatever it is? And for a year, for a few years, she she was really wondering. I think she was quite worried, but I always trusted and I loved my life and it wasn't always easy in those days because you know I didn't have much money and now with the festivals and what's happened and some you know some of the wonderful things that's happened that she is actually quite proud of it and she she's inspired by it which is really good because it turned around because it you know it could go it could have gone, gone, gone anywhere it could have gone the other way you know, absolutely yeah. um, you and my brother could have gone the other yeah, way yeah <laughs> exactly who knows all of us probably could have gone the other way yeah and now it's worked out good you know I've, I've got a wonderful partner Harris who's who's um, Doctor of Anthropology and she's been inspirational in in get, helping me get the festivals together and, and them really taking off you know so and I love what I do I, I really feel 
happy that I've had have this opportunity because that could have gone either way. I, you know, the festival festivals can stop at any moment, like we know now with the, the pandemic. You know, it easily could go bust. But I think the travelling and especially in places like India and stuff when it was more challenging helps you to find ways of innovation and to look even in the in what might seem the darkest moments opportunities. So for me, the, what the Wilderlands has really been inspiring, and I've been reaching out to some really fascinating people through it, who you know from all walks of life. And so, one of the things that happened with Wilderlands, interestingly, recently, I, I, I spotted this. I was reading a book called um, The Last Wilderness, which is a, a Brian author called Neil Ansell. It's really worth getting on board because he's it, he travels around the world, and he's a great travel writer and nature writer. And the, his book, Last Wilderness, is, is about the, where, this, the, the most um, remote part of, of Britain, the western part of Scotland, especially um, Noydar peninsulas and stuff. And it's a place of sea otters and golden eagles, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful part of the world, and it's pretty wild for Britain. And I was reading this book on, on Audible, listening to it, and I just felt really inspired to to know about this place because he said he travelled all over the world but he loves this area so I was looking on there and I and I and I spotted a bit some land for sale there which you know uh, which was incredible over overlooking the ocean and I really felt like this could be the beginning of some kind of rewilding project and so in lockdown I got permission to go and see it because you can see property and drove two days there it's a long way, actually. Got to my friends in Cumbria, which was allowed to stay in permission. Seven hours. Then it was another seven hours. You know, it's like, my God, Scotland's a big place. Yeah. And found this, went to this land, and it was so beautiful. But I stayed there two nights, came back, and just realised it was so far for me living in Sussex. And so I said to them, you know, I, I love it, but it's too far. And then I was writing to this um, wonderful guy, Alan Watson Feverson, who set up a charity called Trees for Life, replanting the ancient Caledonian forest of Scotland. They've planted over three million trees. It's just like incredible guy. Inviting him to come and talk at one of our wild weekends. And he said, I said to him, I've been in Scotland, and he said to me, whereabouts? And I said, this area. And he said, oh, my wife's got a caravan right, right there. And it's a really remote area. Um, there's not many houses. There was no roads there till the 70s and no electricity till the late 80s, you know. And the land I saw has got this waterfall and right near the waterfall there's two free caravans and it's his wife's caravan. And he said, wow, what are you doing there? And I said about this land, but it's too far. And he said, well, why don't we join up together? Because that area is one of the last re um, remaining parts of the ancient Western Atlantic temperate rainforest, which is really endangered. Why don't we set up a pilot project to, to regenerate and rewild it and together? And so we're at the very early stages of setting up a project to to, to do that with the Temperate Rainforest. Oh, amazing. And it looks like we might have some backing already um, to do it all. So it's been really amazing, you know, when you follow your heart and 
seeing what happens. You, know, you just never know when your next step is going to be in life, do you, your next stage in life. I love yeah. that. Well, I'm going to ask you my last question now. And my last question is always about music, because I believe that music and travel go very much in hand in hand. And as you know, music's meant a lot to me and my family, and probably to you as well, I'm guessing. If you had to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel, I mean, that could be in this country as well. Um, what is that song and what is your memory? Wow. Well, I would say my favourite singer of all is an Indian classical singer called Kumar Gandhavara. Um, and I can't remember the name of the song, but any of his music is just incredible. He was a child prodigy in Mumbai and of the classical tradition. And he was going to be the, the, the next big thing in Indian classical music. And he got TB and he couldn't have to stop singing. So he was told to go and live out in the in Madhya Pradesh, in the countryside. And he did. And he would sit there every day and these wandering folk singers like you get in India would come and sing at his door and he'd listen to them. And he kind of fell in love with this music. Anyway, later on they found that they cured his TB and he could sing again. And he brought together, it was the first real thing to bring together the Indian classical tradition, which is quite strict and a bit like ours, with the folk tradition. And his music is absolutely beautiful. And yeah, it is, uh, it's just, yeah, something else. Thank you so much, Hugh. And thank you so much for listening to The Big Travel Podcast. Do give us a review on your podcast app, whatever you're using, if you can. And we will be back with more very soon. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.